1: We'll be looking again this morning at verses 1 through 4, but really kind of moving out across the whole New Testament to try to understand who these 12 men were that the Lord chose and how he chooses to work in them. The context of Matthew 10 is Matthew 9, an understanding of the fact that Jesus is setting up a kingdom and that kingdom has not finished its conquering work. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, "...your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." And so there's still a journey to be traveled. And so we see in this text a connection between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus looks out over the multitude. He sees all of these people. And his heart goes out in compassion to them. He sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he is moved with compassion for them, concerned about their needs, as we discussed. And the first call that he does is he calls his disciples to him. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out laborers into his harvest field. So the first call from our Lord is that of prayer. A prayer for laborers for the harvest field. But you know, we go right on into chapter 10, don't we? And right at the beginning, it says that he, Jesus, called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness And then verse 2, these are the names of the 12 apostles. And so we saw the movement from disciple to apostle. A special call that he was calling these 12 out to serve him in a significant way. And then in verse 5, as we're going to see uh, next week, God willing, these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. So he sends them out. They're apostles. Greek word for sending out. Apostello. They're sent out to do a great work. And so the two come together. The intercessory prayer, the concern, the compassion for the harvest, but then the need to go out. And so we see that prayer alone is not enough. Martin Luther was trained in an Augustinian monastery. He pursued a legal righteousness through the monastic rules and regulations and eventually came to a saving knowledge of justification by faith alone. Freedom from all of that legalism, the very thing that many of you are learning in the book of Galatians. By the way, eventually... Luther married Katie Von Bora. You're not supposed to marry if you're a monk or a nun. She was a former nun. They came together and he he loved her. He loved the Bible too. He loved the book of Galatians and he called the book of Galatians my Katie Von Bora. He loved that book. It was a book of freedom. And he understood justification by faith alone. He understood the gospel. And he felt led by God in a mighty way to lead the German nation in Reformation. But he had a friend, an Augustinian monk, who was there with him and said, I'm going to be with you every step of the way through prayer. If you ever have a need, if you ever need anything, come and tell me and I will pray for whatever you're going through. And he did. And they maintained a close relationship. So as Luther was out debating, as he was writing, as he was preaching, as he was confronting the force of evil, as he was moving out, this man was step by step with him by faith and prayer. And who can say what was wrought in the prayer closet? There was a a great bond between them. But one day, Luther came and and met and said, I'm about to face this debate and I need prayer. And uh, he looked at his friend and said, what's the matter? He said, well, I've I've had a dream and it's shaken me up. He said, tell me about it. He said, well, I dreamt last night that I saw a vast harvest, a huge, huge harvest. And in the middle, there was one man working. And I looked and I didn't understand where the other workers were. And then as I moved in in my dream, I saw it was you. And I realized I can't just pray anymore. I will keep praying for you, but I must go out and teach and preach and minister as you are. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It's not enough merely to pray. And so Jesus calls these 12 and he sends them out. Now, one of the things about the Christian life that you're going to see is that God, after you have come to faith in Christ, after you're justified by faith through the simple belief in the saving work of Christ, God lays before you two almost infinite journeys, overwhelming journeys. One of them is internal and one of them is external. The internal journey is a journey called sanctification. A growth in holiness. Where he takes somebody who's living like a pagan, a sinner. And moves them gradually, step by step. Dealing with sin, convicting them. Shaping them, molding them. Like, a, like the hands of a skilled potter. Shaping the clay. Until you are more and more like Jesus. That process will not be perfect in this world. But he's working it in us. Alongside that is an external journey. A journey of the gospel ministry. That we should take the gospel to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the world. Two overwhelming journeys. One of them symbolized by Matthew 5:48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The other one, a clear command. Preach this gospel to all nations and to every creature. What's so incredible is in the text that we're looking at and in Christ's ministry, we see the two come together. Our sanctification occurs in the context of the gospel ministry that he calls us to do. You can't just sit in a monastery and hope to be sanctified. You've got to get out and be active. You've got to get out and work. You've got to do the ministry that God lays before you. Neither can you do the ministry without growing in holiness and sanctification. The two go together. And so we see the shaping and the molding of the twelve. It's part of his plan. Now, Christ called these 12 disciples and designated them to be apostles. They had a unique role, and we talked about that last time, the strategy of Jesus Christ. They were sent out to proclaim. We saw the centrality of the proclamation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, by the hearing of the preached message. People are going to be saved. And so he's sending these 12 out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He also, we see him delegating the ministry of reconciliation. He knows that his time is short. His time on earth is short. And so he's going to delegate the work of the church, the work of the gospel ministry, to sinners. And we're going to see that today. That's his strategy. He's going to shape them and he's going to send them out. And the twelve apostles have a unique role in all history. None of us have been called on to fulfill that role. Namely, that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' physical life, his incarnation life here on earth. Eyewitnesses. And they wrote down their testimony in the New Testament, and we have it. And on the basis of that foundation... The church has advanced. The gospel is built. It's built on the foundation, it says, in Ephesians of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. This is the unique role of the apostles. Now, last time we began to see some lessons of these 12. Today, what we're going to do is zero in and try to understand who the 12 were. And we're going to look specifically at their areas of weakness. We're going to look at their sin because, you know, something you think, how can I be useful to God? And that's one of the things that cuts off immediately the work that God wants to do in your life. He wants you to use your gifts. He's given you gifts, spiritual gifts. He's given you opportunities day after day. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, like he's a master craftsman shaping you. We are his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God laid out in advance that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. So every day you've got some good works he wants you to do. But then Satan begins to accuse you. He begins to tell you that you're not worthy, you're not up to it. You're too sinful. You're too weak. God could never use someone like you. Have you ever felt that temptation inside yourself? Well, if you look at the apostles, their story is not one of glorious strength and majesty, is it? We're going to see that today. The 12 sins of the 12 apostles. I'm not trying to talk them down. They were godly men. But they were weak and they were frail. And yet God took that inferior clay and made fine pottery with it. That's what God can do. And so we see in the example of the 12 apostles, not alabaster saints or marble saints, not perfect people, but rather sinners saved by grace and then used in a mighty way to turn the world right side up for Jesus Christ. Let's look at some lessons from these master, the master's men. First, the fact is that they were humble, ordinary men. There was nothing unusual about the 12 of them. There was, there was nothing special about them. In the book of Acts, in chapter, chapter 4, Peter and John going up to the temple at the time of Prayer in chapter 3, heal a man, and they're hauled up in front of the Sanhedrin to give an account for the healing. And so they're convicted and they're going to be, they have to give an answer for being Christians. And it's amazing what happens. The, the uh, Apostle Peter stands up and filled, I think, with the Holy Spirit, overpowered with the strength of the Holy Spirit. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What a bold statement to make. Absolutely fearless. But then, chapter 4, verse 13, the next verse when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were, listen, unschooled, ordinary men, they took notice that they had been with Jesus. Unschooled means they didn't enroll in our seminaries. We checked the registrations and they were never there. We never trained them theologically. Where did they get this knowledge? Well, they got it from the master. They got it from the best seminary instructor ever, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. But they were unschooled. They weren't trained in the pharisaical seminaries. They were also ordinary men. Very interesting Greek word. The Greek word is idiotes, from which we get the word idiot. And so they were common, everyday, ordinary men. I was going to say it, but I couldn't do it. Okay? They were idiotes. They were ordinary people that God chose and, and shaped and molded. And as a matter of fact, God delights in doing this kind of thing. He delights in taking ordinary people and conquering a world with them. He delights in taking regular sinners like us, saving them by grace, and then sending them back over the wall of Satan's kingdom of Hades. The gates of Hades will not prove stronger than it. We're supposed to be going up over those gates. Who does he send over those gates? Ordinary people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, Paul puts it this way. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Incredible. God loves to choose ordinary people and do extraordinary things through them. Tertullian, the early apologetic uh, master of the Latin-speaking world, he was debating with Romans who thought that the church was uh, lowly and below them as Romans, and he conceded the point. And he said, in all actuality, most Christians are slaves. But God delights in taking slaves, common people, and overturning perhaps even the Roman Empire in three centuries with him. That's the power of God. We see also the order and the authority of the apostles. Now, we mentioned this last time, but it bears mention again. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it says that Jesus called the twelve to him and sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And so you see also in verses 2 through 4, a pairing up for witness. Peter and Andrew were paired up. James and John were paired up. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew. James and Thaddeus. Simon and Judas. And so we see the pairing up. There's a structuring here for ministry. We also see in verse 2 the word protos, or first, connected with Peter. Look what it says. First, Simon, who is called Peter. The word protos. He's the first. He was the leader of the twelve. We're going to talk more about Peter in a moment, but this is not an accident. In every list of the twelve apostles given throughout the uh, New Testament, Peter is always listed first. He was their leader. And in the same way, Judas is always listed last, Because he was the traitor. And every time Judas is listed in any of these lists, he's always mentioned as one who betrayed Jesus or as the traitor. We'll talk more about him in a minute. But then, even deeper, there's a structuring and ordering here that you can only get if you look at all the lists and put them side by side. This is the work of New Testament commentators. And they show us that in the ordering, there tends to be three groups of four. And the first four are always together in their group, the second four are always in their group, and the third four are always in their group. The first group is Peter, John, James, and Andrew with Peter the leader. Peter's always listed first in that group of four. The second group is Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, and Philip is always listed first in the second group of four. The third group of four, James, and Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas, James is always le- listed as the leader. And so there is a structure or hierarchy even within the twelve. Everything in Christ's kingdom is ordered. There's an order to everything. We also see the possibility of some family ties here. Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. But if Levi and Matthew are the same person, and most commentators think they are, it turns out that Levi's father was Alphaeus. Look it up in Mark 2.14. Well, James' father was also Alphaeus. And it could be that Levi or Matthew and James were also brothers as well. But whether they were or weren't, it's pretty clear that God loves to work along family lines. He loves to work within families. It is so important for Christians to raise up their children in the fear and nurture of the Lord because God delights to work in Christian households and along family lines. And we see finally how how hatred and political ties can be overcome by a greater commitment to Christ. We see that in the juxtaposition of Matthew the tax collector and Simon The zealot. Now, a zealot was a member of a political party. that was dedicated to the overthrow of Rome. Uh, Matthew was not looking for the overthrow of Rome before he met Christ. Instead, he was hoping that Rome would go on and on. And why? Because he was making money off the Roman Empire. Could the two of them naturally sat down and shared some matzos together or who knows whatever they ate or some boiled fish? They would have hated each other. But in Christ, there is unity. In Christ, there's genuine brotherhood. We look at some of the problems in the world today. Is there any possibility of peace and harmony and unity, let's say, between uh, Serbs and Croats or between Palestinians and Jews? Long, long history of hatred in those groups. I'll tell you right now, believers in Jesus Christ from the Palestinians and from the Jews are brothers in Christ. They love each other. It's the only way that that dividing wall of hostility can be torn down. Well, let's look a little more closely at each of the twelve. First, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, we know more about than any of the other apostles. He's very well written about. We have almost a full character study of this man. Someone said of uh, Simon that he was a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. He would uh, speak first and pick up the pieces later. He was often wrong but never in doubt. You remember when John and Peter ran to the tomb the morning of the resurrection. John got there first and stood and hesitated, a sense of of holy fear coming over him, not wanting to go into the place of the resurrection. Did Peter hesitate? Not at all. Went right into the tomb. That is Peter. He was very, very self confident, and that was his greatest weakness. Very self confident, his greatest weakness. But he was, of the twelve, the greatest natural leader. He was a man full of faith. Ultimately, after his denial of Christ, God put him back together and presented him still as the leader so that it was he that stood up and gave the great Pentecost sermon just a short time ago. Now, I think about Peter as a symbol for all of the twelve, all of his weakness, all of his sin put on display. It says in Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan demands to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Now, listen. And after you have turned back, listen, strengthen your brothers. He's been doing that for 20 centuries, hasn't he? If God can use a sinner like Peter, even after a terrible fall like that, he can still use me. The thing about Peter is that he had the boldness to say never to Christ four different times. Four times he told Jesus that he was wrong. Now, that takes incredible courage. One time in Matthew 16, after Jesus compliments him and says, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. not long later that Jesus reveals that he's going to be crucified. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. He begins to rebuke Jesus, the Son of God. Yes, he did. You read it in the text in Matthew 16. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Out of my sight, Satan, you're stumbling block to me. He said never to him four different times. The last time he said never was in Acts chapter 10 after he had received the Holy Spirit. A sheep came down with all kinds of animals. You remember that? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what do he say? No way. Never. I've never eaten anything unclean. Uh, this was not a suggestion, Peter. This was a command. What God has declared clean, let man not call unclean. You have no right to declare the Gentiles unclean. But this is Peter. And it's actually kind of in a... Kind of a perverse sort of way, wonderful to see him still doing it after the Holy Spirit came. He's still weak, still sinful, and yet God is still using him. He had to be talked into going and ministering to the Gentiles, that is Peter. His brother, Andrew, was much quieter and not so ready to lead. But John's gospel shows him constantly, quietly bringing other men to Christ. He actually brought his own brother, Simon Peter... To Christ, And so he was one of those, he's a symbol of those unsung heroes from church history. He's always bringing people to Christ. James, son of Zebedee, is his brother John is much better known. But he was a fisherman in his father's business, successful enough to employ other men. He was willing to leave his fishing business when Jesus called him. With his brother called a son of thunder. He was willing to call down destruction on the Samaritan city. He was also the first martyr of the twelve, beheaded in Acts chapter 12. John, we know better than uh, James and anybody except Peter, also a son of Zebedee, probably originally a disciple of John the Baptist. But God got hold of him and transformed him. He was arrogant enough, along with his brother, to ask for a place of honor in Jesus' kingdom. Grant that I might sit at at your right and and my brother at your left. We don't care, right or left, as long as it's us. He was that kind of prideful person. But when the time came for him to write his gospel, he didn't even put his own name in it. He just consistently called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. God did incredible work in him. Philip, like Peter and Andrew, his hometown was Bethsaida, originally a disciple of John the Baptist, left him to follow Jesus. He was the one that called Nathanael to follow Jesus. At the feeding of the 5,000, it was Philip who was tested. Jesus goes to Philip and said, Where are we going to find food for all of these people to eat? Philip failed the test. said, You know, eight months' wages wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. I don't have the first idea how we're going to feed them. But it was Philip who answered that. And it was also Philip who said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, Don't you know me after I've been with you all this time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip had connections to the Greek community and that a large bunch of Greeks came to Philip and and it was Philip who brought them to Andrew and Andrew who brought them to Jesus. Philip itself is a Greek name. Bartholomew, many scholars say he was the Nathaniel of John 1, and I think that he was. It was he who said of Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? And so he was a straight shooter. He was a true Israelite, said Jesus, in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel. Thomas, also called Didymus, that means twin, had a twin. We don't know anything more about the twin. But he's famous for one thing, isn't he? Famous for his unbelief in the resurrection, so he is called Doubting Thomas. And yet, he is the one who makes the greatest confession of Christ in the entire New Testament. The absolute pinnacle of the Gospel of John is Thomas's confession. He had said, unless I put my fingers in his wounds and see his wounds, I will not believe the resurrection. Jesus showed himself to Thomas as an eyewitness and said, go ahead, convince yourself. And he said to him, my Lord and my God. That is the confession every sinner must make in order to have eternal life. And Thomas makes it so beautifully. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Matthew, the tax collector, we talked about several weeks ago, and so there's no need to add anything. He was living a life of sin, uh, collecting taxes, and then Jesus called him and he got up and left immediately and followed Jesus. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, we know almost nothing about either one of them. And so they're symbolic, again, even of the hidden, unsung heroes of church history. They slip to the background. We don't know much about them. Simon the Zealot we talked about. He was willing to befriend a tax collector, willing to be friends with Matthew, to be part of the Twelve Apostles, willing to give up his hopes for the overthrow of Rome by the sword and rather contribute to the overthrow of Rome spiritually by the preaching of the gospel, a transformation in him. Last of the Twelve... Always last of the twelve was Judas Iscariot because the fact of the matter is he really wasn't one of the twelve, was he? In John chapter 6 Jesus challenged his people he said unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you. And many of his disciples went away at that point. Jesus turned to the twelve and said you don't want to go away too, do you? Peter spoke for all the twelve and said Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then Jesus said this he said have I not chosen you the twelve and yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas Iscariot, who later would betray him. Judas is not an example of someone who believed and then lost his salvation. He's not an example of a believer who turned away later from his faith. He never believed in Christ. He was always a devil. And so specifically, I believe, Jesus gave him the role of taking care of the money bag. And why? Something had to hold Judas there. Jesus wasn't foolish. He gave him control of the money bag and would judge him for his pilfering of it. And he did pilfer from it. It seems that money or love for money was the unifying theme of Judas's life. It seemed everything he did was out of love for money. I think he followed Jesus out of love for money. He certainly denied or betrayed Jesus 30 pieces of silver out of love for money. And eventually it led to his own death and destruction, his suicide. Now, as you look at these 12, we see their faith. We see their determination to follow Christ, except Judas. But we also see their weaknesses, don't we? And so I went through the scriptures and I found 12 areas of weakness Twelve areas in which they fell apart. First, ignorance or dull-wittedness, lack of understanding. How many times in the New Testament does it say that they did not understand? They didn't understand the parables, did they? They had to come and ask Jesus for special instruction. They didn't understand the miracles. They didn't understand the foot washing. And they certainly didn't understand that Jesus had to die and rise from the dead. They were constantly, it seems, clueless. They did not comprehend what God was doing through Christ. Also, we see argumentativeness. They were constantly bickering. It seems like they couldn't get along. Now, you think you would think that apostles would rise above this, but they were always arguing about something. In Mark chapter 9, as they were coming to Capernaum, uh, Jesus went to the house and asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? It seems every time they're arguing, they try to hide it from Jesus. Oh, everything's fine, Jesus. Everything's fine. Uh Uh-uh. They're arguing. And almost always about the same thing. Which of them was the greatest? And that's why Jesus had to call in the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the last and the servant of all. In Matthew 16, they're crossing across the lake and they start to argue about forgetting to bring bread. This is a very insightful moment, isn't it? I thought it was your turn to bring bread. I got it last time. It was your turn. The problem is there's no Kroger's or McDonald's or anything on the other side. That meant they were going to go hungry that day. It was a big deal. And so they argued. They tried to blame shift. That was the disciples always arguing. We also see their lack of faith or their unbelief. Over and over, five times in Matthew's gospel, he calls them, you of little faith. They had enough faith to be saved, but they did not have enough faith to trust him for bigger things. When Jesus was up on the mountain uh, with Peter, John, and James, the Mount of Transfiguration, the rest of the apostles were down and a father brought his son to be healed. In John 17, the father comes to Jesus later and says, I brought my son to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered this way, "O unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And when the demon was driven out, the disciples came later and said, Why couldn't we drive him out? He said, Because you have so little faith. Jesus had in this chapter, chapter 10, given them authority to drive out demons. They'd already done it, but this time they couldn't do it. Why? I don't know. They lacked faith. Over and over this was a problem. We also see pride and jealousy. Repeated arguments over which one was the greatest. The most scandalous of them all was the night before Jesus was crucified. Can you imagine? Jesus is about to die on the cross. He's about to lay down his life. He's going to give them all of that incredible instruction in John 14, 15, and 16. He's going to pray for them in John 17. He's going to love them. And what are they talking about as they walk in that room? Which of them is the greatest? They're still arguing about it. So you know what Jesus did? He took off his robe, put a towel around his waist and got down and washed their feet to show them what leadership in the church was supposed to be like. The context was their arguing over which one was the greatest. Pride and jealousy. Also a yearning for power. I already mentioned, you know, John and James and their desire to sit at Jesus' right and left. It didn't come from them originally. It came from their mother. The mother came and said, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at left. Some of you mothers can relate to this. I want great things, not for myself, but for my sons. Sit at my right or left. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm able to drink? We can, they said. And Jesus said, you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, the other ten apostles heard about this, they were indignant with these two. Power hungry, prideful, jealous. We also see overconfidence. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all of them fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Before the rooster crows, You will disown me three times. But Peter answered, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. There's that word never again. No, Jesus, you're wrong about me. But listen to the next verse. And all the other disciples said the same. They all proclaimed that they would never leave Jesus, but they would be with him. Oh, about two or three hours later, they were running for their lives. They were self-confident. They were overconfident. And I think it's demonstrated by the fact that they wouldn't pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. They also had a lack of compassion for the lost. One time they came to a Samaritan city. And the Samaritan city would not welcome Jesus in. So the sons of thunder, James and John, said, Lord, do you want us to call down thunder and lightning on them? Destroy the city. And he rebuked them. He said, you don't know what spirit I have. They were just had no compassion for the lost, not naturally. They were frequently out of step with Jesus. Parents would bring the little children to Jesus for him to pray for them and, pr- and, and place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. They thought, Jesus is too important for children. And Jesus was indignant with his twelve at that point because they were out of step with him. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for if such is the kingdom of heaven. And worldliness. What is worldliness? It means looking at things from the eyes of the world, not through eyes of faith. Jesus had finished in Matthew 23 giving the seven curses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! And at the end of that, he says, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house, the temple, is left to you desolate. For I say, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he leaves the temple. And at that moment, the twelve apostles come up to him and say, Master, what incredible buildings, what great architecture, what incredible stones. Worldly thinking. He said, do you see all these stones? Not one of them will be left on the other. Everyone will be thrown down. They had no idea the significance of what Jesus was saying. We also see prayerlessness. How many of us can confess to that, that we do not pray as we should? Jesus commanded them in Gethsemane, watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. But they couldn't stay awake even for one hour. And that prayerless led, prayerlessness, in Peter's case, led, I believe, directly to his denial. And cowardice. They were constantly afraid. Afraid of drowning in the storm. Afraid of Jesus walking on water. They thought he was a ghost. They were afraid at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were afraid to ask Jesus a question. They were afraid to go up to Jerusalem. And they were afraid to be arrested with Jesus. And after... Jesus had been crucified, and after he had been raised from the dead, and after he had appeared to them, they were still in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. And then finally, and most significantly, they rejected the crucifixion and did not believe in the resurrection. Is that not the center of our faith? They could not accept that Jesus the Messiah would die on the cross. Peter rebuked him over that very issue. And none of the others could understand the crucifixion. A dead Messiah made no sense to them, even though it was all laid out in the words of the prophets. They were not expecting it. They could not accept it. Neither could they accept or believe in the resurrection. Some people say, why did Jesus not appear to the skeptics after his resurrection? Why did he only appear to the apostles? Can I tell you something? The apostles were the skeptics. None of them believed in the resurrection initially. They all had to be persuaded. And so in these 12 ways, ignorance and dull-wittedness, lack of understanding, argumentativeness, little faith, unbelief, pride, jealousy, yearning for power, overconfidence, lack of compassion for the lost, being out of step with Christ, worldliness, prayerlessness, cowardice, rejection of the crucifixion and unbelief in the resurrection. My goodness. And yet with these and people like them, Jesus conquered the world. He conquered the world. Do you see yourself in that 12 list, that list of 12 things? Do you find yourself in there? Unbelief, prayerlessness, weakness, cowardice. Do you find yourself there? That's us. And Jesus has conquered the world. He's not finished yet. There's still work to be done. But don't you see that He's winning? Don't you see that the gospel is extending to the ends of the earth? He will complete what He has promised to complete. And He's going to do it through people just like you and me. He's going to shape you and mold you in his school. He's going to work with you. He's going to train you. And he's going to conquer the world through people just like you. Now, what application can we take of this? First of all, be active. Get involved in the discipleship. Get involved in evangelism. Christ can use anyone. Banish forever the sense that you're too weak, too sinful to be used by God. Secondly, be humbly confident. Human sinfulness cannot stop Christ's kingdom. God is going to use sinners just like you and me to advance, and our sinfulness will not derail His plan at all. Thirdly, be molded. Look at the cover of your bulletin. I found this picture on the cover of A.B. Bruce's classic book, The Training of the Twelve. There you see the hands of the Master. He's shaping and molding the pot, isn't he? He says, I'm the potter, and you are the clay. I know how to train sinners to be perfection under my hand. But the thing that's fascinating about that is that on the potter's wheel, it's got to be turning in order to work, right? It's got to be moving. There's got to be activity. There's got to be a context for the shaping of the pot. And so you must be active in ministry in order to be fully growing and sanctified in your walk with Christ. More than anything, just pray, yes, Matthew 9, for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. But go and be active using your gifts in ministry and let the Lord shape you. Close with me in prayer.
0: and for the glory of God.